Seven years ago, almost to the day, I was lying alone on a cot in the emergency room. See, one of my legs had swollen up, like, a lot, and it was really painful and kind of hot. So I called the advice nurse, and the urgency in her voice was really shocking to me. And She told me, get to the emergency room right now. So I did. I drove myself to the emergency room. It was a weeknight, really late at night. Like, I left my house, I don't know, 11 o'clock. Once I got there, the doctors suspected a blood clot, and they urged me to stay in the emergency until the morning when they could do an ultrasound to confirm. See, clots are really dangerous. Little bits of them can break off and migrate to your lungs, your heart, your brain. And they can be fatal. They can cause a heart attack or a stroke or pulmonary embolism. Because the little bits can break off, they don't want you to move a whole lot. So they didn't want me to go home. They also didn't want me to walk around. They wanted me to stay put. So I did. When I heard them say that they thought it might be a blood clot, my mind went immediately to a friend of mine who was one of the most robust men I had ever met. He was really tall and strong, and he was so loving and big-hearted and so much energy and just so full of life. And he died really suddenly and unexpectedly from a blood clot that he got after he had had some knee surgery. And it was a shock to all of us. And that was the first time I really knew that somebody could die from a blood clot. Turns out, it kills something like 100,000 people a year. So lying there in the emergency room, that's where my mind was. And... I was alone because I didn't call my friends. Like, I didn't want to be a bother. It was after midnight at this point on a weeknight. People are working. I just, I don't know, didn't want to be a burden. Still, I was really afraid. And I was pretty bummed to be alone. Later, when I told my friends about this, Like the next day after I got home, I was roundly scolded for not calling. And it was very clear that they would have come. I wouldn't have needed to be alone. It's not a burden to call somebody because you're in pain and scared and in the emergency room. And I promised that I would call them in the future. And I said, thank you for the soup and the hugs and the scolding. In the morning, I went to the ultrasound tech and I learned that, yes, it was a blood clot. And I always thought of them as really tiny. You know, they're in your veins and your veins go all the way through your body and all of this. But this one was like the entire length of my thigh. And it was as big around as my thumb. And I learned that they can get even bigger. They can grow and they can get 
closer to your heart and to your lungs and causing even more danger because then they have not as far a distance to travel. And the process at that point is that you just start taking anticoagulants or blood thinners so that you don't have the clot get any bigger. And then you just have to wait while your body dissolves it on its own. While I was waiting, my leg was still swollen, filled with blood that couldn't get through the vein. It was still hot. It was still very painful. I was still not able to move very much. I wasn't supposed to move very much. I was lying around feeling like my life was really precarious at that moment. That all I had to do was dislodge the clot and then bam. Over the next weeks and months, as I was having to inject myself with blood thinners and start to take other pills and change my diet and just sit around. I spent a lot of time thinking about what it would have happened if I had died that day. What would I have missed? What ways had I fallen short? What things had I achieved? And what would I be leaving behind? I took away many lessons from this whole experience. I got very clear that I needed to reach out to my friends and to let them in. I needed to learn how to ask for help and learn how to receive it. I gained a new appreciation for every day and for the wonder that is our bodies. It was very complicated inside and it was amazing to me that it worked at all. And I became much more focused on the present moment, on appreciating what was here right now. And that's the topic for today. Lessons for living that we can learn from the dying or from close brushes with death. I figured, you know, it's the end of the year and it's a good time for reflection. Hello, kind people, and welcome to Dying Kindness, the podcast for people who are going to die someday. I'm Sienna Stewart, and I'm going to die someday. You will too. So let's all do what we can to make some key decisions now in order to be kinder to those that we'll leave behind. I encourage you to write all these things down and keep them in one place, what I call a death binder. You can get a template for your own death binder and more at dyingkindness.com. If you want to support the show and help me keep it ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash Stewart. Patrons will get private Q&As and early access to future workshops, and I don't know what else, depending on what you all tell me you want and need. Don't worry if you're not able to become a patron. I fully intend to keep producing these podcasts and releasing them for free and non-exclusive, available on all the platforms. So just listen and enjoy. Today, I'm going to discuss three books. The Top 5 Regrets of the Dying, The Four Things That Matter Most, and When Breath Becomes Air. All three have valuable lessons for living and for dying. 
I'm doing three different books because they're all very different in their approaches and tone and backgrounds. And I'm hoping that one of them will resonate with you and be useful to you. I got different things out of each one, and I found them all valuable. First, The Top 5 Regrets of the Dying by Bronnie Ware. Top 5 Regrets is written in the style of a memoir. It's a mix of Bronnie Ware's stories about her experiences and lessons that she learned while caring for others. She's Australian, and she had a job for many years as what's called a carer. It's a non-medical position, primarily in people's homes, being a companion, sometimes cooking food or telling stories, helping with basic functions like bathing and using the toilet. And she was often with people for months in the process of their dying. One of the key hallmarks of her experience is that she was often alone with the dying person and she was in their homes. So she had a very different kind of experience than what you'll hear in the other two books. Because it's a memoir, she shares a lot of her own struggles. She comes from a sheep farming family, but she was a vegetarian who then later became a vegan. She was also a yoga practitioner, a meditator, and in general was just so different from everybody else around her that she needed to leave her home environment and try to figure out who she was and what she cared about. I think many of you may find this inspiring if you're already inclined to yoga, meditation, that spiritual path. And I also think that some of you may be turned off by her level of woo. She is somebody who talks about being open to different experiences and then just accepting what comes. And she has a a way of talking that I think will totally work for some people and will totally not work for others. She goes through each of the regrets as a section in the book, and then she illustrates them with stories of certain clients that helped her to see what the regrets mean and the impact that it had on their lives and to just help illuminate a more nuanced portrayal of the regret and the cost of dying having this regret. It's clear that Bronnie Ware wrote this to talk to people at every stage of life, and kind of particularly if you don't expect to die soon and you have time to change your life so that you don't die with these regrets. That's certainly what she was doing, and that's a big part of the story. So what are those regrets? Regret number one. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself. This is certainly one that we're familiar with, and it's no surprise that this is the number one regret of the dying. We often hear about people wishing that they had become an artist instead of trying to live up to their parents' expectations, or maybe they wanted to travel, or they wish they hadn't married so young, or something like that. There's something about inheriting expectations from family or from society and knowing that that's at odds to something that feels much more true to you, that is a pretty common thing to hear about. And it's just notable that it does take courage to buck those trends or to say, 
I want to do something that feels risky or that has much more struggle associated with it, that has fewer, I'm hesitant to say guarantees because it's not like life has any guarantees, but to do something that feels like it's going to disappoint others or just be a lot harder. So it's no surprise that regret number one is, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself. Regret number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Most of Bronnie Ware's clients are older, and so this certainly came up much more with men from that generation because they were the ones who were working and away from their families. But it is something that comes up for any gender who spends much more time working than being with people that they love or doing things like traveling or playing or something creative or something that feels much more heart-centered. And it isn't saying that work is bad. It's just to recognize the cost of that work and how even when you're working in order to provide for your family, there is a sacrifice that sometimes the family just wishes you were around more. And so the people who expressed this regret felt like maybe they had been too absent and that they had sacrificed too much and that in the end, what they really wished they had more than prestige or money or success was memories and time with people. So they had this regret. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Regret number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. This regret goes along with the last one, where not only are people not spending time with the people that they care about, but they are really having a hard time expressing their feelings, saying things out loud, don't want to feel vulnerable or goofy or be rejected or whatever it is that keeps us from expressing our feelings. I'm sure I don't have to explain that to you. We all are familiar with it. But it's really striking to me that it's strong enough that it's actually one of the top regrets. I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Regret number four. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. I hear a lot and I read a lot about people being afraid of dying alone. And I also certainly know many older people whose circles get smaller and smaller. In my own life, I can see how incredibly valuable it is to have friends over many, many years, people who know me in different ways. And I can also see how easy it is to lose touch with people. We all get busy. Some people have families. Some people move away. Some people's life trajectories just change from how we once knew each other. And then we lose touch. This is something that has been helped through social media and I think is really the 
positive power of systems like Facebook. But if we rely exclusively on social media, then all we're doing is cultivating and maintaining what's called weak ties. And real friendship is a strong tie. The kind of friendship that people are thinking about when they express this regret at the end of their lives is certainly a strong tie, not a weak tie. Maintaining friendships, deepening them over the long term, and at least just keeping track of them so you don't have this regret. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. Regret number five. I wish I had let myself be happier. This one took me by surprise, and at first I thought maybe that's because I live in California and I'm much more of a younger generation than the people that uh, Bronnie Ware was caring for. But at the same time, I know so many people who postpone their happiness. They're working hard now so that they can be happier in the future, or that they're focused on presenting well, maybe, instead of actually feeling joyful, feeling playful, or that they just somehow deny themselves for whatever reason. And as soon as I started thinking about that more, I realized that, yeah, there's a lot of people doing that all around me all the time. I certainly have done this myself, and I know many periods of my life where I was like, I just need to get through this, as opposed to making time for and prioritizing feeling joy, taking care of myself, or feeling happy. And that's what I hear in this regret. I wish I had let myself be happier. So that's the top five regrets of the dying by Bronnie Ware. Next, The Four Things That Matter Most by Ira Bayok. This book has a very different tone. Ira Bayok is American. He's older from the baby boomer generation. He's also a palliative care specialist and had taken care of many, many people, primarily in a medical setting. I also read the 10-year anniversary edition, and some of the stories that are in there are stories that had come to him since the publication of the first edition. They weren't necessarily stories of his own patients, but they were retelling of stories that he had been told after the publication of the first edition. Ira Bayak writes very much in the voice of a doctor, and he carries with him a sense of authority. And it's a very different style than Bronnie Ware's. He has a much more traditional viewpoint regarding family structures, and he's also Christian. He definitely carries that point of view throughout the entire book. In many ways, not very much overly so, but it's certainly present, and I certainly felt it. I did note that this book is used in pastoral care, so certainly many other people are also feeling that Christian point of view. Arabiak has devoted his life to changing how we treat serious illness and dying in this country. He's very passionate about it, and that certainly comes through. The structure of this book 
is that it's a collection of anecdotes with short intros sharing his own perspective. And it's clustered with a collection of anecdotes for each of the four things. I loved most of the book, but I will say that I was personally triggered by a couple of the stories and the ways that he told them. In particular, he had a story of a very conservative family whose son was gay and died from AIDS. There's a way that he told that story that I found personally angering, and I really wish that story was not in the book. There are a few other stories as well that were very much not in alignment with my point of view, but I didn't get so angry. I did find a lot of this book valuable, but for me, some of it definitely rubbed me the wrong way as a Gen Xer, super liberal, not so traditional person as Ira Bayak. I would say that not all of it worked for me. However, I do know that for some people, this may be exactly the right book. This may be the book that actually reaches through to somebody who is more traditional, who is a baby boomer, who perhaps hears these kinds of stories from a doctor's lens in a way that feels really good and supportive. So I think there's a lot of value here. In general, the book was clearly written for those who are close to dying and for the people around them. Bayok is very focused on palliative care, and all the stories and the examples are drawn from those last moments or from the last few weeks. That said, in the epilogue, he shares how he has personally taken the four things on as a practice in his life, and he tries to stay complete with the people around him in all of the relationships that really matter to him. Noting that we don't, any of us know how long we actually have, and sudden death, unexpected death is real and not uncommon. And so he strives to stay current so that if it is the last time he sees somebody, he knows that he said all the things that need to be said and that they know how he feels about them. So I think that that's a really powerful practice and it's one that can be really challenging, and yet I feel inspired to take it on, and I think that it can be extremely transformative if you say the four things with regularity so that you stay complete with people. And what are those four things? Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. In Bayek's experience, We need to say all four of these things. You don't really pick and choose. There's a value in saying them all. There's also a wisdom in stating the obvious, like thank you and I love you in particular. I think we have a lot of times where we're saying, oh, they know that I appreciate them or they know that I love them, but don't really get around to saying things in as many words. But it's actually really great to hear, to say it, to make sure that somebody actually knows because maybe they doubt and you don't know that they doubt. But if you said the words, then they would have no doubt. With the first two, please forgive me and I forgive you. 
Bayak does include anecdotes and stories talking about forgiving what we think of as unforgivable behavior in others and in yourself and the transformative power of actually sharing the hurt, getting over the anger or saying, I'm just done and closed and moving past it. Certainly there are things that feel impossible to address or to forgive. But having now read a lot on different kinds of forgiveness and the healing power of that, I can see how important it is, particularly at the end of somebody's life, to get that level of closure and to address those things directly. He also talks about how the four things can be part of a necessary process of saying goodbye. We hear stories about people who seem to hang on for something, one last event, or maybe one last person to show up. And that feeling of closure, that feeling of readiness is needed for them to actually release and then die. And it's the goodbye that gives them that ability to release. So the four things again are, please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. The last book I want to talk about is When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. I'm just going to start by saying I really loved this book. It worked for me in its style and its story and what it says. And I recognize it may not be right for everyone, but for me, this was an incredibly powerful book. It's a memoir, and Paul Kalanithi starts the story as a young man searching for the meaning of life. He's turning to philosophy, to literature. He wants to be a writer. He gets a lot out of different books. He's extremely well-read. But over time, he turned to medicine and discovered that these questions of life and the meaning of life very much lived for him in medicine. He ends up becoming a neurosurgeon, and these questions of life and death are part and parcel of the practice of neurosurgery. Certainly, he's in conversations with patients who are facing life-threatening illnesses. He also talks about how so much of our identity and our ideas about the meaning of life and how we connect with other people through words and all of that is in our brains. And so he comes at this position as a neurosurgeon with a certain amount of reverence for the brain itself. And then he gets diagnosed with lung cancer. And the next part of the book is his chronicle of the transition from doctor to patient and how many things he realizes that he never knew as a doctor, that he didn't even understand until he was a patient. The entire book was written after he gets his diagnosis, and there's a certain level of urgency in the book that definitely comes through. His style is very much a blend of his love of literature and of neurosurgery, he mixes in a lot of descriptions of medical procedures. So warning, if you're not somebody who's down for that, that this might be a really hard book to read. 
and he also includes a lot of literary references. He turns back to literature throughout his life to understand and explain his experience and to make it more rich. It seems to me that the audience is both doctors and patients. There's a way that he talks about what he didn't understand as a doctor and the process of what he was learning as a patient that is written in a way that it seems to be communicating back to doctors to expand their empathy, to invite deeper conversations, to put in questions into the kind of sureness that they have around so much of the work that they do, particularly folks who are like neurosurgeons and and other folks in very high-stress fields of medicine. This book doesn't have the kind of pithy takeaways that the other two books have. It won't make a good short article. It's a little harder for me to summarize for you here. But it does allow the reader to witness someone grappling in near real time with the question of meaning and what makes a life worth living. And I say near real time because he's writing it after he's got the diagnosis in between his different treatments whenever he has enough energy. And the question of what makes every day worth living and what kind of care he's getting, they're all very, very alive for him at the same moment that he's writing. Paul Kalanithi also shares a lot of the details which illustrate the kind of range of issues that families of the dying will face, the changes that happen to their household, to their expectations, the ways that they all had to think differently about the future, and also the not knowing how long that future would be. What was the impact of not having a very clear answer for any of that? So I think it's it's a really great book for becoming much more clear on the kinds of things that a family needs to think about and also what a patient needs to think about. And frankly, in this, in terms of what we're all doing here, a lot of these are things that are really important to consider when you're completing your advanced directive and perhaps can help to inform the way that you're thinking about your own advanced directive or the kinds of conversations you're having with others. I also thought it was really brave for Kalanithi to talk about how easy it was for him to lose his empathy as a doctor and in some ways that it was really necessary in order to be able to do the work that he did. But at the same time, he's writing an appeal to doctors to work to retain that empathy, to remember what it's like to hear some of these words and to live through all of this. So it's a, it's a book that's trying to achieve a lot in a very short amount of time. I want to read you some of the excerpts from When Breath Becomes Air so that you get a sense of his style and the wisdom that comes through. So here are two different passages where he reflects on how much we rely on mortality statistics, on the drive to know how long you still have after you get a lung cancer diagnosis or any kind of diagnosis and noting both how futile that is and how necessary. What patients seek is not scientific knowledge that doctors hide, but existential authenticity each person must find on her own. Getting too deeply into statistics is like trying to quench a thirst with salty water. 
the angst of facing mortality has no remedy in probability. And here's a second passage from close to the end of the book and close to the end of his life. Grand illnesses are supposed to be life-clarifying. Instead, I knew I was going to die, but I'd known that before. My state of knowledge was the same, but my ability to make lunch plans had been shot to hell. The way forward would seem obvious if only I knew how many months or years I had left. Tell me three months, I'd spend time with my family. Tell me one year, I'd write a book. Give me ten years, I'd get back to treating diseases. The truth that you live one day at a time didn't help. What was I supposed to do with that day? I love that he ended that passage with talking about the just live one day at a time statement because it can be so pat and it doesn't really help. What does the word live mean? And that is the question that this entire book is tackling. What does it mean to live? The book does drop off rather suddenly because Paul dies. And his wife, Lucy Kalanithi, is the one who finishes it and is the one who, together with his family, made sure that the book got published and has been carrying it forward. I will include in the show notes a link to a video of Lucy giving this amazing talk at a TED-Med conference in front of other doctors, sharing many of her own experiences as well as the kinds of things that Paul was trying to achieve in the book. All three books contain valuable lessons and a lot of wisdom. You may find that one is better than another for your personality or your situation. I'm not sure which book will resonate with you, but I wanted to make sure that you had some options. I'll include links in the show notes to articles and videos that are drawn from each of them in case you want to have a preview or maybe you're just not the kind of person to read an entire book. If you do want to buy the books, I strongly encourage you to shop at your local bookstore. You can also shop online while supporting independent bookstores by going to dyingkindness.com and clicking the bookstore link in the menu at the top. That'll take you to bookshop.org and my list of curated books that I've read and recommend for the Dying Kindness audience. I'll continue to update that list, so check back in on it from time to time. So to summarize all of that, because who doesn't love a good summary at the end of a podcast, huh? Live your life so you don't die with these five regrets. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I had let myself be happier. Be complete in your relationships by saying these four things. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. And Paul Kalanithi noted there isn't one capital T truth. He wrote, Human knowledge is never contained in one person. It grows from the relationships we create between each other and the world, and still it is never complete. This is the last episode for this year. I hope you all have a great rest of your 2021. 
see who you can see, and reach out to those that you love. I'll be back with more in 2022. Thank you for joining me here on Dying Kindness. The theme music is by Blue Dot Sessions, and everything else was done by me. I'm Sienna Stewart, and I'm going to die someday. But I'm delaying that by diligently taking my blood thinners twice a day. And twice a day, this reminds me that I'm still here, and I'm grateful that I have today. Today's death reading is Since I Have Felt the Sense of Death by Helen Hoyt. Since I have felt the sense of death, since I have borne its dread, its fear, oh, how my life has grown more dear since I have felt the sense of death. Sorrows are good and cares are small since I have known the loss of all. Since I have felt the sense of death and death forever at my side, oh, how the world has opened wide since I have felt the sense of death. My hours are jewels that I spend, for I have seen the hours end. Since I have felt the sense of death, since I have looked on that black night, my inmost brain is fierce with light, since I have felt the sense of death. O oh, dark that made my eyes to see, O oh, death that gave my life to me.